welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. I'm going to read simply 1 John 1, 5 today. It's part of a longer passage that we're going to be involved in the next two or three weeks, which goes all the way into chapter 2 and verse 2. But we're going to be focusing today, although I'll explain some other parts of the passages, simply on verse 5. Hear with me the Word of God. John writes, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, That God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. God's holy word, revealing a holy God. May we see Him in all of His greatness. Amen. You can be seated. Well, as we uh, continue in the, uh, the epistle to... The churches around Ephesus, it was written by uh, John. We, we come now to a, uh, a way of thinking where John shows us uh, some of his thoughts and, and how they move into the obedience of the Christian. First John, as I mentioned last time, is a lesser known epistle, but it is filled with deep truth. You would expect that from the man that walked with Jesus more closely than any other in his Christ's earthly ministry and who was given such profound insight. Lesser known, but deeply true. We, we saw over the last time, time or two we've been in it that this was written by John the Apostle, and that means a lot. John was the last surviving apostle of the, of the 12 who had gone out on, and carried the Great Commission around the world. He uh, wrote in his lifetime, toward the end of his life, by the way, uh, the first uh, uh, 60 years of his life or so, he spent preaching and teaching and pastoring, and, and his, his writing of Scripture was in the last decade or two of his life. He lived into his 80s. The first, gospel, first uh, Bible book that he was given to, to, to write was the Gospel of John, which is the latest or the last of the four Gospels written, we believe, and it was, uh, in, in John's way, of John put together the questions of the church that had emerged by that time that the other Gospels may have touched on and may not have, a very unique Gospel that, that answered the great and growing questions about the deity of Jesus. So it's the deepest Gospel when it comes to the identity and nature of Christ. So he covered there the past of Christ's ministry and and what the church needed to know from the past. He kind of brought all that together. Then he was led to write three epistles, which are letters to churches, the first, the second, and the third of John. And we're studying the first epistle. And, and those went out to a, a number of different churches that John was kind of overseeing. And in, in the epistles, in, in the Gospel of John, we see the past life of Christ kind of put into full perspective. The epistles give us an insight into the church in the present at John's time. And the, the, the problems that the church had grown into, the church by that time, the, the, the church worldwide was now about 60 years old. 
in, in terms of from the, from, the, from the resurrection day to when John wrote his epistles. And so we get an insight into what the church was like and some of the, church, the problems the churches grew into. We're going to see, by the way, some of our problems as a church today, the problems that Dwight and I talked about and others are, are, are problems that uh, are reflected in this epistle. And then finally, after all this was done, John uh, was exiled to the island of Patmos where um, emperor, the emperor uh, Domitian, I believe, uh, decided to shut him up. And all, of that, all that did was make him a captive audience for the vision of Revelation. And he, he wrote the book of Revelation. So if you take a look at John's writing ministry, the gospel of John was John's calling to package into deeper and final form everything we needed to know about the past, the life, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and his identity. The epistles were all about the problems the church was facing right in that hour in the present. And the book of Revelation was a gift to the entire church that, that arcs over to our time to bring us a full understanding, at least from God's point of view, everything he wanted us to know about what he was going to do in the future future. God choosing men, inspiring them to write, and giving us the scripture. And so we have all of that. As I said, I'm so glad John didn't quit. Uh, Your Bible would be a lot lighter if he had. Now, 1 John was, like I said, written to a number of different churches in Asia Minor. You can read their names, I believe, in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3. John traveled throughout those churches. The, the major church was the church at Ephesus. The oldest church was the church at Ephesus, and it was right around 50 years old, 45 or 50 years old. By the way, our church at Valley Forth, 50 years old last year. So the church was, the church had had gone from the, the early 30s A.D. To, to 90 A.D., let's say, when John wrote the epistles, or pretty close, and so 60, to 60 years or so. And the church had uh, gone through a lot. The church at Ephesus had already passed through its first generation of believers. So the, the first people that got this epistle were the people in Ephesus where John was pastoring. He was a pastor emeritus by then. He was so old. But he was pastoring. Timothy had taken on the pastorate before him. Apollos had been there, also the great gifted Christian teacher and others. But John was there in Ephesus, and we believe that this was first read to the congregation from the pulpit in Ephesus, and then it was copied. Ephesus kept a copy, and then copies were sent around on a circuit, probably to the other churches in Revelation that you see in Revelation 2 and 3. Each of them read this from their pulpit and then made their own copy and sent it on to the other churches. And so, as we would say today, his work went viral as God intended. And then later the church realized that 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, are, they, were, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit and they became part of the New Testament you have. Now, as I said, the whole church was about 60 years old and, and the churches had lived through their first generation. All the other apostles had died. John was held on in old age. So most of the churches that were in existence no longer had original believers, original eyewitnesses of the life and ministry of Christ, people who'd been there perhaps in the crowd on Pentecost Sunday when the Spirit of God worked in that remarkable way that was recorded in Scripture. And so the first generation had passed on, and now there were second and third generation Christians who were making their way into the future. I think about Valley Forth, and we're 50 years old, and I would say that it's, it's, it's true that most of the people 
that were part of the first inaugural service of our place, our church, are not, lo- are not with us anymore. We're moving into the generation of life that the churches that John wrote to were moving into. So there's a lot for us to learn here. There were three things going on in the time that John wrote. And this is all just kind of give you, by the way, just some more perspective on this before we get to this critical verse that John gives us on God's holiness. So stick with me. I've been told that you appreciate the perspective and the context, so I'm going to keep going. There's three things that were going on in the churches at that time. One was that difficulty was on the increase. What do I mean? As Dwight and I were talking about, the temperature of the culture had changed, and there was a growing hostility toward declared truth, toward Christian truth, toward the lives of the believers, toward the moral convictions of believers, and the church was entering into a darkening time that would soon experience persecution. Nero had launched persecution about 20 years earlier in the mid to late 60s. That's where Paul was executed and Peter was. It had quieted down after crazy Nero had left the scene somewhat, but persecution was always around the churches. John came into his late writing ministry in Revelation when an emperor named Domitian was in power who was beginning to be hostile toward the Christians and leveled up the old persecution to a new level. That's why John was exiled to Patmos. After John died, uh, about 50 years later, a crueler emperor than these two, Diocletian, would come into power and he would make persecution an official policy of the Roman Empire. And he kicked off persecution that lasted from about 20 years after what John wrote here for 200 years. The church fully began to suffer. So difficulty was on the increase. The Christians were experiencing it and the culture was pushing back on Christian truth. Do you see a point of familiarity today in our culture? One would say yes. Two other things, however, were on the decline. One was correct doctrine. Remember I said second and third generation. They didn't have a fully formed New Testament at all at that time. There were the the teaching of the apostles that had been put into writing and circulated among the churches. There were the verbal traditions of Jesus and everything else. But the church didn't have what you have today, a clear New Testament before it. And so the church was wide open to people that were claiming to be just as inspired as the apostles were who traveled from church to church. And they became uh, the great problem in the church at that time. They were false teachers. Paul was followed by people. You read, that's why he wrote Galatians, for example. He would plant a church and, and preach the apostolic gospel and give them the truth. And then soon after that, some false teachers would come in and undermine what he did or retranslate what he said or down, or, or down talk who Paul was. And Paul would have to correct that throughout his ministry. John was in the same situation. False teachers had come not only into the church at Ephesus, but all those churches, and they were bringing false doctrine. So false doctrine was on the increase. The, the, the openness of the culture was on the decrease. False doctrine was on the increase. I would say that we're seeing some of that today. It is very difficult for you to to fully understand that you're not a pastor, but I see it every day. There are streams of false teaching or poor teaching or deceptive teaching moving throughout the Christian church today like I've never seen in my lifetime. And then the the third thing that was going on was that there was a, a drop in the devotion of people to walking in holiness and obedience. That's why John wrote this epistle, because there was a lot of sin erupting in the church. There was deception that he had to deal with from the false teachers, but then there was also 
just a lot of sin that was moving through and people were rationalizing it and living double lives as we're going to see today and next week. So a lot of that is happening, I would say, in the church today. We live in a relativistic culture morally, don't we? We, live, we, we come out of a society that says there is no superior truth. There is no declared right and wrong. I'm the standard of what's right and wrong. I read that to you last week from the surveys, that even Christians are influenced by that. And so the moral life of the church today is being hampered by people who are, st- who are basically saying, did God say? So we see all of this going on. So this is why I believe one of the reasons the Holy Spirit put this in your Bible Because, as Paul said, the the times as we move closer to the end will will, will wax worse and worse. You'll see seasons like this over and over again. Now, I mentioned, uh, as I introduced the letter to you, that that John wrote, we think, to, to accomplish two things. One was to correct false doctrine. And we saw that already last time. And false living that comes with it. But the second was to encourage people to discover the truth and walk into what I call classic Christianity. Christianity was getting getting damaged by false teachers. It was getting dumbed down and lived out of by by people that weren't following Christ as they should. And, And 1 John is a call back to classic Christianity, to the faith the way God really designed it to be. And that's why I've entitled this whole series through 1 John Classic Christianity. Finally, it's impossible to outline this book. I've mentioned this to you. Why do I bring that up again? Because basically, as I teach it to you, we're just going to be teaching it in chunks of thought. John was like a concerned parent who has that one last night before their kid goes off to whatever, boot camp or getting married or whatever. And he was trying to pour into this epistle all the encouragements and all the warnings that he could to pack that kid full of truth before the kid launches out onto the ocean of life. And so he's like that kindly parent who says, now remember this, and then also be, be careful about that. And have I, have I mentioned this? And then, oh, by the way, let me go back to what I told you just a few minutes ago. I want to give you a little bit more on what I want you to remember about that. So John just kind of hits you like a shotgun. He'll teach something, then two chapters later, you find he cycles back to it. But he always does it with the heart of love because what do you see in this book over and over again? He looks at them and he calls them little children. Never forget the heart of love, as tough as this book is. Last time, we saw John open the conversation in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And uh, he took on one of the things that was really big on his mind, and that was false doctrine. And in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, we saw that he took on the teaching that these false teachers had snuck into the church, their false ideas about Jesus, that Jesus was not God. In fact, that they did not need a full savior from sin and all kinds of other false ideas about Jesus. And we saw that John in four verses gave us eight different things that if you understand them, you're believing in the true Jesus. I'm not going to go through them all again, but he, he basically essentially went through that and he corrected false doctrine. We saw that if you believe these eight truths about Jesus, then you do know the true Jesus. If you don't, there's some questions to ask. So he's done with that part of the conversation. Old John takes a breath. Now he shifts in chapter 1, verse 5. And in chapter 1, verse 5, all the way chapter 2 through chapter 2, verse 2, he talks about the other problem. Not was, there was false doctrine, and then there was false living. 
a lot of these believers, having been taught poorly, were living in sin. And so he deals with this. In fact, from verse 5 all the way of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2, verse 2, that's seven verses, and John mentions the word sin ten times. So if you're a Bible student, it doesn't take a lot to understand what his point is, what his purpose is. He's going to dissect the threats of sin and the lies of Christians. He's going to reveal how they're rationalizing about their sin or ignoring their sin or declaring they don't have it, how they're living double lives, how they aren't, they're not being truly taught from the word. And if they are, God's going to bring conviction to them. All of that is coming as we look at this over the next few weeks. So he shifts from false doctrine to false living. And so I've really titled this little section here today and next week at least, Honest to God. Because that's basically the dangerous territory you get into when you're dealing with sin as a Christian. You get into dangerous territory when for whatever whatever reason, you're no longer being honest with God about areas of your life. So I'm going to open it up in such a way as that. Now, um, what I want to do today is give you the big picture of the passage in terms of the nature of how the Bible talks about sin. And then I'm going to take a look at just one verse, verse 5, which is a bright portrait of the holiness of God, which is always, 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 am I making a point? Always the standard when it comes to deciding what sin is. You're going to find one of our biggest problems is we think we're the standard. We fall into the same trap that Israel did for years, and God had to confront them. I think it's one of the, one of the minor prophets. He said, it's curious, you, you've, you've always thought that I'm a God altogether like you. No. Verse 5 starts this whole passage by declaring that God is the standard. More on that as we go through. So two things today, the big picture of the passage in terms of what God says about sin and what the passage gives us, and then the bright picture of God's holiness, and then having gone through verse 5, then we'll open the other verses next time, and you'll see how this all works out practically in your life. So when you look at 1 John, I I didn't mention something else about this epistle, which makes it difficult to teach. In fact, um, you you can't teach this epistle as a Bible teacher without uh, having somebody in the audience who knows something about Bible study disagree with you. Because there is an ongoing debate over who John really wrote this to. Did he write this epistle primarily to confront non-believing false teachers? Are most of his warnings geared for non-Christian people? Or did he write this to believers? Well, was it written to non-believers or believers? Would you like to hear my bold, courageous answer to that question? You already got it. My answer is yes. <laughs> have you seen me do this before? Yes, you have actually. I think it's impossible the way the epistle is structured and the way he spoke and wrote it to identify one singular audience. My answer is he wrote both to non-believers and believers. Primarily, here's my step of faith, he wrote this to Christians, some of whom may not have been. Let me put that out there again. He wrote this to Christians, some of whom may not have been. And he wrote this so that the Spirit of God would move through the truth that he was telling so that everyone that read what he said would come to conviction. 
The believers would come to conviction about deepening their walk with God. The non-believers would come to conviction, and they'd either come to believe in the true Jesus that I preached to you last week, or they would get out of Dodge. That's what his intention was. He wanted non-believing false teachers to be so struck and convicted by this that either they would leave the church on their own or the church together would just kind of sidle them out because they would know the truth. So he wrote to believers. Why do I think he wrote to believers? Well, he uses the first person plural throughout this, we. Look at that in verse verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That's the language of believers. He's including them in the believing community. So I think some of the strength of the language points it out. The fact that he calls them little children so much through this epistle on balance tells me he's writing to believers, but there's always the reality that some of them may not be. So that's the best way for me to answer the question. I don't think you can just clang down one answer on this epistle. It's too varied. That said, I want you to hear the teaching today and all the way through the chapter, the first chapter, read it as though it's written for you. Because it is. You're on his heart, you're on his mind, Christian, whether you're a Christian a month old in Christ or whether you're a 50-year-old Christian like some of the leaders he might have written to. Read this and hear it from me as though this is for you. Now, if that's the case, and I just told you that he's speaking to Christians, but in seven verses, he talked about personal sin 10 times. What does that tell you about a still recurrent problem in the life of the Christian? Is there, is there a still recurrent problem? Some of you are saying, oh, bad news for crying out loud. Ten times seven verses. Can't avoid it. It means that recurring sin is a problem for the Christian. By the way, some of you are going, Phew. <laughs> I'm glad there's other people in the same boat as me because, you know, my Christian life's a battle against recurrent sin. I don't know if yours is. So there it is. So in in that context, let me just kind of give you the need to know about sin, and particularly if you're a newer Christian. And some of this stuff came to me late in my study. I didn't get a chance to send it in with my notes. So what I'm going to say for the next few minutes, you just kind of kind of came from a broad kind of Bible run about the nature of what sin is. And why do I bring it up? Because it's so little discussed in Christianity today. Personal sin, the issue of, of sin itself, what caused us to be condemned to hell if we don't deal with it? Actually, if you go into a lot of Christian contexts, it's really not talked about very much. The doctrine of sin, however, is critical for you to understand in order to come to Christ. And it's critical for you to understand in order to progress in Christ. So what's the need to know about sin? Just in broad, general terms. Well, sin is described in the Bible as a transgression of God's law. And you don't have to take my words for it. If you look further in in 1 John, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, John in his directness defines sin. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And then he says, sin is lawlessness. That implies somebody gave a law. Who gave the law? Class. God did. Ever heard of the Ten Commandments? Just a reach for you. God is the moral arbiter of the universe. 
He came as he was in full holiness and expected his universe to operate under the domain of what he expects. Well, sin, if sin is lawlessness, it's, 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 it's living against the moral law of God. So when you think of it that way, maybe another question in your mind is, well, how did it start? If God is holy, where did sin come from? That's a great philosophical question, isn't it? Now, that's a question of origins. That's an ultimate question that nobody can answer except God, by the way. And he did answer it by giving us a book called Genesis, didn't he? And the the prophets. The Bible tells us that sin had its beginning. In Isaiah 14, you'll see this with an angel of light called Lucifer. In fact, that's what that name means. A created angel, perhaps the most beautiful and powerful of all the created angels. And he was not content with his position in heaven, Isaiah tells us. He desired to be at a higher level than God, whose worship he was commanded to give. And that was his downfall. That was the beginning of sin. You can read about it in Isaiah 14, for example. The Bible renames him Satan. He's no longer Lucifer, son of the morning. He is now Satan, which means adversary. Now, Satan, after experiencing the judgment of God for his sin in in times past, decided to bring sin's show to the human race. And that's where the book of Genesis picks it up in the Garden of Eden, as you remember. What did he do when he slithered into the Garden of Eden and into Adam and Eve's perfect relationship with God? He brought temptation. He brought the call of sin in the same way that it arose in his heart. Because he he enticed them with the same temptation. You shall be like God. Isn't it interesting what Isaiah says was, was Satan's, Lucifer's downfall into sin. The same call was what he packaged and gave to Adam and Eve. You shall be like God. They fell in sin, as you know. And that, that's all described in Genesis 3. They went against God's law and they bought Satan's law, Satan's command. Since that time, sin has been passed down through all the generations of humankind. You've got to understand that. That's a biblical truth. It's been passed down through Adam's descendants. We've inherited sin from him. Romans chapter 5 tells us that through Adam, sin entered the world, and so death was passed on to all men because the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. So sin became a permanent problem in the human condition. Through Adam... you've inherited sin. That means right now you've got an inherent inclination to sin, is what one author called it. You were born with that. It entered the human race, and human beings became sinners by nature. When Adam sinned, his inner nature was transformed by his sin of rebellion, bringing him not only into spiritual death, but also introducing the reality of depravity that would be passed on to all who came after him. Somebody put it this way, and I've used it many times from the pulpit. We are sinners because we sin, and we sin because we're sinners. Something has happened fundamentally to humanity. In the same way you inherit physical characteristics from your parents, you inherited a sinful nature through Adam's line. That's why David said in Psalm 51, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So that's a reality. That's a condition that we are all suffering under and and we suffer with. So sin is a bigger thing than just what you do. Sin, when when you're born into this world, is is the essential of who you are. You've heard the phrase born in sin. 
Now, another aspect of that is not only inherited sin, you could call it, but that which is committed every day by every human being. Not only are we sinners, but we sin. So you, you, you commit individual personal sins that live out your sinful identity. Everything from seemingly innocent thing like not, and things like not telling the truth to devastating things like taking a life. All of those in the, in the kaleidoscope of what humans do comes from inherited sin and the decision to act out who you are. Now all of that, John says in 1 John 3, breaks the moral law of God. And God being perfectly holy has to deal with the breaking of his moral law, doesn't he? Or else he loses the essence of who he is. So believers, unbelievers rather, those who have not placed their faith in Jesus have to pay the penalty for their personal sins on their own. And since they have offended an eternally holy God, the price is an eternal penalty. penalty. And that's why the nature of eternal punishment and an eternity of lostness without God in the future fits eternal sin. Now what I'm saying to you, some of you may be saying, I heard that this morning. I've heard it in Bible classes all my life. Good. You're under good teaching. Some of you haven't heard it enough. For some, I can almost guarantee something is coming open in your inner understanding for the first time. You need to understand the nature of sin to fully appreciate the greatness of your Savior. Because the Savior was sent into this world to take upon himself the wrath of God for your eternal sin. And being fully God, like John said in 1 John 1, 1, this wonderful Lord came out of eternity and into time went to a cross for you and he took the full wrath of God for your sin so that you do not have to face it. That's why we call it a wonderful cross. So you see, the greatness of the cross is only seen in the darkness of sin. Now, also, something else I want to kind of close this little soliloquy with is that Christians not only are forgiven of their sins through what Christ has done on that wonderful cross, but a great transaction happens. The Holy Spirit comes to live within you, and you now, not only as a Christian, are freed from the penalty of your sin, past, present, and future, you also have the power to resist sin in your daily life and walk. And that's why John calls them to deeper levels of holiness and obeying God. You can now choose, Christian... This might be news to some, whether or not to commit personal sin. What? I'm serious. Among some people, that's a totally new teaching. Under the power of the Holy Spirit, according to Romans chapter 8, the Spirit will convict you of sin and then empower you to live above it. Perfectly no, but increasingly yes. Did you get that? Perfectly no, increasingly less, and yes, and joyously so. That's our great heritage as Christians. And yet, once again, we're still in a Christian culture that believes there's been no change, no great transaction in you that makes you any less able to avoid sin than you were before you got saved. We just choose to ignore it. That's completely false teaching. John is going to go into this marvelous passage here in the verses we're going to get to next time as well about the beautiful privilege in verse 9 of confessing your sins. And coming back into a deeper fellowship with God. Of verse 7 of understanding that the blood of Jesus covers everything in your life. Even the things you did today as a Christian you never imagined you might do. Your sin is covered. And you have the great privilege as a Christian of coming into the celebration of that. 
but it won't mean much to you at all if the darkness of your sin is not revealed by a preacher. And so you see his faithfulness. So that's kind of the need to know about sin. Now, under this big picture of the passage, let me go to three subpoints from that teaching and, and that I've seen that Christians need to be reminded of over and over again. Here's the first. The forgiveness of sin we have as Christians is permanent. One of the risks that, that you take when you're a Bible teacher and you talk about the darkness of sin is you risk sending a person into a personal depression because they say, well, then there's no full answer to that in my life. I could never do enough to atone for my sin. And of course, that's exactly what the Bible says. Good news. You could never do enough to atone for your sin. Greater news. Jesus did it for you. And when he did it, it was complete. Go to Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Romans 8, 1 says, There is, present tense, Christian, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you find any exceptions in that verse? I don't. Do you find any sin that you committed that such at, at such a high level that it outruns the cross of Christ? I don't. It's an absolute statement. The word condemnation came from the courtroom of the time, and it meant a verdict. In other words, God's not going to declare you guilty again. He declared you guilty when the Spirit convicted you, and you turned to Jesus Christ. When you turned to Jesus Christ, all that was swept away. We're going to see later in chapter 2 of 1 John, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So there, the, the Bible says God cannot put you under what we would call double jeopardy. No condemnation will come your way, my friend. There is now that you've turned to Christ, no condemnation. He will not hold it against you. And by the way, there's no chance that the great judge of the universe is ever going to overturn his not guilty verdict on your life. He's not corrupt. He's perfect. So the first thing you need to remember, as I gave you the, 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 the 10 miles of bad road just a minute ago about sin, is that the forgiveness of sin for the Christian is permanent. Here's the second thing, though. This might kind of take a little air out of your balloon a little bit. The prevalence of sin in our lives should be lessening, though. This is where we miss a lot of it as Christians. See, a lot of our Christianity today is shaped by revivalism from the 1800s, which, which kind of taught that once a decision is made, if you've made a decision, you don't have to worry about how you live. Uh, that might have been well-meaning, but that's not, that's not true. You see, the Bible says that because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, this is 2 Corinthians now, and chapter 7 and verse 1. Here's a startling verse that I'll bet you some Christians would be amazed in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Your old King James says, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What does that say? 
It says that the prevalence of sin in your life should be lessening the more you get to know him and the more you develop through the Holy Spirit's power the ability to say no to sin and yes to God's will, God's law, as John would call it, in your life, day to day, hour to hour, challenge to challenge. You should be growing in holiness. We don't hear that taught today. We, we, we hear people teaching the greatness of the cross, but overreaching that and saying the holiness you have in Christ is sufficient. Well, I just told you it's sufficient. But his great heart wants to be pleased by seeing you become more like his son. That's the part we leave out. We give people fire insurance Christianity, <laughs> as you've probably heard it talked, or decisional security, as you've probably heard it taught. No, there, there's, if, if you are a true believer... John, this is a theme throughout 1 John. You are going to be growing in your likeness to Jesus Christ. And the prevalence of sin in your life should be lessening. Take a look at 1 John. Let me just prove the point. Right here in our epistle of 1 John, go to chapter 2 and look at verse 12. Later on, we're going to study this in a few weeks. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have what? Overcome the evil one. We're going to get to this, but John talks about the progression of sanctification in the life of the Christian, and it is exciting. You should want to become someone who knows God so richly and who has gotten levels of discipline, victory over sin in your life in certain ways so greatly that you can find yourself in there as someone who is a father, someone who knows God. You get there by becoming a young man. And he speaks in the, in the language of the time which just was assumptively male, but he's talking about men and women. You get there by learning to overcome the evil one. And so we're going to go into all of this, but sin is is something that should be lessening in life. Am I talking perfection? No, I'm talking direction. I'm not talking perfection. Are you susceptible to just the same kind of sin when you're you're in your 80s as as a father, a spiritual father, as you would be in, in your teens as a spiritual child? Absolutely. The flesh is capable of anything. But this idea of growing in victory is something we don't talk about enough. Let me get to the third one, and then I'm really going to have to run. The handling of sin in our lives can be a problem. That's the third thing. Now, if we go to chapter 1 of 1 John, that's where we're heading next time. Because, you see, the, the people in the church that John was writing to were starting to play with sin. And in the passage as it builds itself out, they were doing one of three things. Number one, some of them were ignoring their sin and they were living a double life. That's verse six. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We're deceiving ourselves. We've decided to live a double life. We've decided to ignore sin. So that's one thing Christians can do. Another thing people can do is verse eight of 1 John 1, which we'll get to later. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Sometimes you don't ignore your sin. You start to rationalize it and say, well, you might think that's sin, but it really isn't. You know, I, you, my standard says that that's not really a problem. None of you have run into this? Okay. 
And then there's another far more serious place, place you could get, and that's chapter 1, verse 10, which we're going to touch on. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us, that may indicate a person who says, I don't even believe people are sinners. I don't believe I have a problem with sin. I believe I'm innately good. What's that person got a problem with? The gospel itself. Because to come to Jesus, what do you have to admit about sin? It's real. And that you're lost without him. So you can see that he's getting, getting ready to attack here different ways that the Christians were starting to minimize sin. So that's the big picture. Thanks for hanging with me. Last 10 minutes here or so, we're going to go through the bright portrait of holiness. Go back to chapter 1 of 1 John, and we're going to look at this verse I told you was coming. Verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. We're going to finish with this. Why is this important? I call it the bright portrait of holiness. Now notice something. Before John starts taking, t- talking about sin and how they're minimizing it or ignoring it or rationalizing it in verses 6 all the way through chapter, verse 10 of chapter 1, before John starts talking about sin, he's, he talks about God. Why would he do that? Because you will never understand sin correctly unless you understand God correctly. Let me repeat that. That might be one of those that you're right on the margin. You can never understand sin correctly unless you understand God correctly. Why? Because he is the standard. We are not. That's another one you might want to write down. He is the standard. We are not. And I'll tell you right now, one of the things the Christian church is getting turned all around in our generation is that reality. We are becoming those who sit in judgment on what the Bible might say about everything from sexuality to the nature of truth. I'm sorry. Don't you sit in that place. God said, I am not a God who is altogether just like you. So John begins here. He's going to talk to them about sin, verses 6 to 10. But he says the first thing he has to do is drill into their minds who the standard is. And so he says, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He is the standard. You are not. From that fountain, then the rest of his teaching flows. Two things under this. We see here, obviously, this was preached by Jesus because John says, this is the message we've heard from him. Who? The, The person he was talking about in the first four verses, that's the Lord Jesus Christ when he was here on the planet. John says, I go back to the beginning, verse one. And I remember when he first started to teach, I remember everything he taught. And the Holy Spirit has brought back to my mind everything I forgot, John 16. I know what he said. I know what he taught. I know how he lived. And I know one of the things I heard over and over from Jesus is that God is light. And that God is the standard. And that no matter how religious you think you are, or how together you think you are, or how smart you think you are, or how philosophically intact you think you are, you don't matter. Sorry, you just heard somebody tell you that in church. You do not matter. Your point of view is nothing compared to what God says about himself and about his world. Now, Jesus preached this, and he faced endless trouble for it. Now, you recall 
that Jesus Christ faced an entire religious society known as Judaism, that for three years he faced them. It was a society that had already created standards that they could keep without going deep. (laughs) Who were they? They were the Pharisees predominantly. And they had taken the commandments of the Old Testament, God's law, but they'd missed the heart of it. They turned it into an outward religious system, but they missed the greatest law, which Jesus repeated to them over and over again. The greatest is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these all the the law hangs. They missed that completely, and they got into dietary laws and laws about how you dressed and what you did with a dead body or whatever, and they took all the external ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. He says, if you keep these, you're good with God. And in fact, just to make sure that we control you, we're going to come up with 600 others. And they had this cap. They did. They came up with like 600 other oral laws that they put into a different book. And they said, by the way, you got to do this too. But if you keep all these outer laws, some of them were so ridiculous. They said tithing 10%. Okay. If you get, if, if, if a, a bean pod grows in your garden and you open it up and there's 10 little peas in the pot, you cannot cook all 10. You take one of it and set it aside and give it at the temple and you can eat the nine. Is that ridiculous or what? Some of you cook that way, but that's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that's how external they were. So they, they made them things that they could keep without going deep. Well, Jesus confronts this and I'm just going to show you, this is one of the places where Jesus started to get in trouble in Matthew 23 and verse 25 Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, the people I just told you about, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, how you dress, where you walk, how many times a a day you ceremoniously wash your hands, whether you do any work on a Sabbath, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You've never obeyed the law of God about truly loving him or loving somebody else. You have a double life. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Now you can imagine that that really made the room buzz. That kind of preaching gets you disinvited. And we saw that if you go to the end of chapter 23, everything collapses from that point and they become his enemies from that point onward. But that's another story. So when you bring this message out, you're going to experience resistance. John chapter 3 is another place where this you can be see this. John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus by night, this man who had come asking him spiritual questions. And Jesus says this, and this is where John must have remembered. Jesus said, God is light. And the judgment is this. This is verse 19 of John 3. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Who was the light? Jesus. John remembered that because in John chapter 8 verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So John is saying, we heard Jesus say this all of his ministry, that God is holy. We're not. Jesus came as God on the planet. He was holy. He was the light of the world. But every time he, he, he preached and he brought us God's standard, we saw the same thing. People hated it. In verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Wow. 
So John says, I'm going to bring you a message, church, that was hated by those that hated Jesus. But the message is this, God is holy. He's pure and perfect. It's not popular. But you know what? It is transforming, because if you go to chapter 8, yeah, certain people hate that message, but Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Some people love that message. That's you. That's the believers John's writing to. Your heart is convicted. The light comes on. You see your sin for what it is, and you turn to your Savior for who he is, and suddenly you can't get enough of the light of the world. That's what a true Christian is, my friend. That's the new heartbeat of a regenerate life. By the way, this also talks about what I call the burden and blessing of being in today's world. What do I mean by that? If you're a Christian, you're a child of light, Ephesians. You cannot help but let the light of who Jesus is be seen through you. What did Jesus just say happens in normal society when people who are involved in wickedness see the light? They hate it. They oppose it. They attack it. But you see, that's now who you are. So the burden of being you as a Christian in a darkening society is that that's going to continue to increase. And so don't be surprised in a darkening society like Dwight and I talked about ours being, that's going to increase. You just have to accept the burden of being or else you're unfaithful to Jesus. But there's also a blessing. I said there's a burden and a blessing of being. The blessing is what Jesus said in John 8, 12. Some people under the power of the Holy Spirit, are looking for light. When they see it in you, they will come into new life, and it'll be worth everything you suffer for that to happen. There's a burden of portraying light. There's a blessing. I want it both. I'm calm, content to carry his light and occasionally see the blessing. Here's the second, and I close. John says, we heard this from him. This we heard from him, and we proclaim it to you, second-generation Christians, that God is light. It's not only preached by Jesus, but here's my last point. It's portrayed by light. What did he mean? He picked up Christ's words. He, he, he communicates them to this new generation. God is light. Does that mean he's just full of glory? We know that's true. When he showed up, yeah, the landscape was completely electrified. No, light here is symbolic. The interpreters tell me that I studied this week. It refers to the moral perfection of God. It refers to the moral perfection of God. He says God is morally perfect. You could put the word holy in there. You could put the word pure in there. He is morally perfect. He is absolutely and perfectly good. In fact, he is so good that he adds a phrase at the end, and in him is no darkness at all. The Greek is very emphatic. It means not a shade, not a stain. I would say the English word scintilla. I looked it up this week. It means not a speck. He is perfectly pure. Perfectly. We can't imagine that. Why? Because I told you earlier, we're born sinners. We're, we're flawed people with, with, with finite minds, clouded by sin now. We cannot understand that. That's why we shouldn't set the standard. 
Because we're ugly sinners. He can set the standard because he is light and in him is no darkness at all. The Greek is a double negative. No, not any. Now you say, well, okay, I've kind of always thought of God that way as a Christian. It may be clear to you, but it wasn't to that culture. You've got to remember, these people were coming out of Roman paganism. Roman paganism had a whole selection of gods, a pantheon, they would call it. And all their gods were sort of like them. Their gods were in their image because they'd been designed by people. And all of their gods, they worshipped a world full of gods, all the ancient Greek and Roman gods, who were really no less evil than they were. They were just more powerful. The gods of Rome committed adultery. The gods of Rome committed murder. The gods of Rome had fits of anger. The gods of Rome, you just, just fill in whatever you want in human sin. The gods of Rome had that and did that. And these people are coming out of a culture where man had been the standard and there were broken standards all around him. And God has to, John has to begin the whole question about holiness and he's going to call him and we're going to get into this next week. I want you to walk in fellowship with God and the first thing you've got to know about God is that he is absolutely and totally unimaginably pure and holy and good. And now he's given you the Holy Spirit so that you can begin to be like him. Wow. What a vision. So I'm going to conclude this for today, you know, at this point, because I think I've made the big beginning point that John makes in his argument here. And that is that when we talk about holiness, write it down. God is the standard. We are not. It's he, not we. So the culture in John's time was getting it backwards. These were all people that were pagans that had barely been saved. Some of them were only a few months old in Christ. Some of them were years old in Christ, but they didn't have, hadn't had great teaching. They needed to understand this. And that's our Christian culture. We're all coming out of a pagan culture. And we live immersed in a social culture that says man is the standard and there is no standard. We can do whatever we want. And here we are, bearers of light. You see, there's all kinds of people in our culture today that are like this. Think about the relativist when it comes to heaven, for example. A relativist says, and I've talked to so many of these people, and I say, what would you do if you suddenly died and it turned out there was a God and you're before him? So many times they say, well, you know what? I've, I've lived a better life than most. And I'm pretty sure that most people really wouldn't be ready for the final exam before God anyway. Nobody else ever studied. And it's going to be like in high school. It's going to be like in algebra when nobody else really studied and you were pretty confident that you'd pass anyway because the teacher graded on a... The relativist teaches that. Why? Because he's decided what the standard should be to evaluate his life. And if he was God, he would grade on the curve. But he is not you. God is light. He is pure. He's holy. So the relativist better take a second look at this. That's why our culture is, is plummeting in relativism. And, and you cannot be eternally secure that way. Then there's the moralist. I used to be involved in Christian broadcasting. I worked for the largest Christian broadcaster in the country. And, and I was part of a broadcast team in California. And 
And there were national broadcasters as well that we would go to Washington, D.C. with every year, and we'd have our conference, and, or they would come and broadcast from our studios. There were people like Michael Medved and, and, and others. And uh, one of them is named Dennis Prager, whom many of you know with Prager University, who is a very outspoken and well-spoken conservative uh, social commentator. But, and Dennis Prager, I've met and interact with him, interacted with him on numerous occasions. He came to the studio where I broadcast, did his show from there a number of times would meet him at conference every year. Was very impressed with Dennis as a conservative social commentator, but Dennis is a conservative, though not Orthodox Jew. And he resisted the gospel and it has to this day. But he just came out with an article this week. I'm sure you can find it online. The headline was, what does God care about? And in that, he speaks like a conservative Jewish person would about the moral, the moral laws of the Old Testament, and God cares more than anything else that you keep the moral laws of the Old Testament. The implication is you can be a moralist and get to heaven. He says the most important thing to know is what God's moral commandments say and that you do your best to keep them. There is no understanding of the fact that you cannot keep them perfectly and you need a Savior. I feel for him, and I've, I lament over that deception. That's the moralist. No, you've you've become your own standard. He is the standard. Then, of course, the most popular thing that's growing today is the universalist who just believes that God would have a very kindly kind of understanding, doddering, indulgent view of all people. And he just opens heaven to everyone, no matter their lifestyle, their beliefs, anything. Woody Allen, this is a famous quote of his, Woody Allen, the producer and director and actor and all that guy, with, you know, the same kind of questionable life everybody would have. He was on The Tonight Show years ago, and I don't know which host it was, but the host said, Woody, if God did exist, and if God could speak to you, what words would you like to hear from God? Woody Allen said, I would like to hear three words. You are forgiven. Now, in the emotional context of just the human condition, we might say, oh, yeah. What John says here, listen. John says the only way you will ever hear from God the words, you are forgiven, is if you first speak the words, I have sinned. You want 1 John chapter 1? There it is. And that's where you need to be led. You can't say that until you've clearly seen His holiness. It's the Christian decision. 